ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. My guest on Conversations today is Merlin Sheldrake. Merlin has done many unusual things in the pursuit of his great passion. He has buried himself naked in a mound of decomposing wood chips, run after truffle dogs in the hills around Bologna, harvested bog myrtle from a marsh to brew medieval ale, and lain on a hospital bed as part of a clinical trial into LSD and imagined himself a fungus. Merlin is a biologist, and he is fascinated by the world of fungi. Mushrooms are the most well-known emissaries from that world, but there is a whole teeming, complex, alive universe of fungi going on every moment right beneath our feet. And this is the world that Merlin brings to the surface in his book, Entangled Life. Hi, Merlin. Hi. It's great to be here. Merlin, am I right in assuming that fungi are plants? No. They're their own kingdom of life, as broad and busy a category as animals or plants, but a distinct kingdom of life from plants. They were lumped in with plants until the, uh, until the 60s, when they won their independence, tax- taxonomically speaking, along with bacteria, uh, who also won their independence in the 60s. And so this has led to a lot of uh, confusion over the years, but, but now we see them as independent. But that's a relatively recent distinction. But are they closer, Merlin, to plants than, than say, they are to animals? Would, would you think they have more in common by, by what is commonly understood by a plant? So they have more in common with animals. They are more closely related to the animal kingdom. And they, unlike plants, which make their own food by eating light and carbon dioxide in the process of photosynthesis, fungi have to find food in the world. Uh, ready-made, as it were, and digest it, as we do too. Is it known how many species of fungi there are? So there are estimates, and the best estimates are between 2.2 and 3.8 million species. So that's about six times as many species of plant. And the main shocking statistic as, as regards fungal species is that we think we've only described about 6% of all the fungal species on the planet. So we really just at the very beginning of our understanding of these astonishing organisms. And why is that? Why have they been so little studied? There's a few reasons, I think. Uh, One of them is that they've long been lumped in with the plants. And so rather than having your own department of fungal sciences at universities, the study of fungi was a, a dusty corner of the plant sciences department and it had to divide funding and resources and students with the plant world. So it's always been this kind of neglected little sibling of botany. And so I think that's part of it. But also they are strange and peculiar and they defy our our categories. And mushrooms are ephemeral, for example. They come up for a short period of time and then they rot and they go away again. And most of the fungal organism remains out of our sight. Uh, difficult for us to perceive, difficult for us to notice what it's doing. Literally under the ground, I'm, I'm guessing, mo- most are underground? Under the ground or, or just immersed in their food source. So if they're eating a rotting log, they'll be you know, within the rotting log. Um, so out of our sight, and, and, and it's only in recent years that we've developed technologies that allow us to, to access these fungal worlds, like much of the microbial world. DNA sequencing, for example, which allows us to sequence the DNA of these organisms and work out who's where. So that's another reason is that we have only recently just been developing these, um, these technologies that allow us to, to see further. From what scientists do know, Merlin, how large can fungi grow? Well, the largest known organisms in the world, in fact, are fungal networks. There's one in Oregon, which sprawls over about 10 square kilometers. It's a honey fungus or armillaria. And that's just one fungus that, that's 10 square kilometers? Yes, exactly. Somewhere between 2,000 and 8,000 years old, um, weighing hundreds of tons. But there are probably many older, larger ones. You know, To find out that that's the size of that uh, particular individual, it took a lot of sampling. People had to go around and take samples of the fungus and then do genetic tests to make sure 
that it's the same the same organism because it's not like a not like a blue whale or a you know a sequoia tree which would be standing right in front of human's eyes it's it's hidden from view again is it absolutely yeah it's hidden and, and it's very hard to know whether this this branch of the fungal network over here is the same individual as that, that branch you know over there a long way over there and so you know, we have to we have to do this kind of testing to to make sure of that and and for that reason and because we can't do that kind of testing everywhere i mean all the forests of the world it's very unlikely that we've discovered the full extent of these fungal networks i mean i i think of fungi as something soft and and squidgy but can they be strong or or maybe forceful's a, a better term absolutely yes so you can have um, some mushrooms mushrooms grow using uh, by inflating with water they grow hydraulically and some fungi can produce mushrooms which can push through asphalt roads or lift heavy paving stones um, which is quite a well-known fact but if you pick that very same mushroom that had just crunched through an asphalt road you'd be able to fry it up and eat it this is this amazing thing that this soft uh, fleshy mushroom can also produce that kind of force and also lots of fungi can burrow their, their their mycelium can burrow into solid rock using high pressure and using acids so um, they're very they're very powerful and resourceful digesters you mentioned that giant honey fungi being many thousands of years old how long have fungi been around on earth so the best estimates at the moment put it about oh, just over a billion years but a billion years. Yes. That's and, amazing. But there might be, like, there are some fossils that have been found from up to, to uh, over 2 billion years, which look very fungal. They look like a mycelial network. And there's a really puzzling these researchers at the moment because 2 billion years is a long time before we expected fungi to have branched off the tree of life. And yet here are these two billion-year-old fossils which look just like fungi and no one knows quite how to make sense of them. And is there anywhere on Earth without fungi? Well, yeasts, which are single-celled fungi, are everywhere in the air and on the surface of organisms. And there are spore, fungal spores in the stratosphere. And there are millions of tons of them, in fact, in the stratosphere. There are uh, fungal networks in sulfurous sediments hundreds of meters below the ocean floor, stringing their way through coral reefs under the surface of the sea. Um, there are fungi really, really everywhere. And so just that range of environments, they can withstand very great differences in temperature, can they? Absolutely. You have extremophile and um, extreme loving fungi that uh, thrive in the blasted reactor at Chernobyl and that appear to be able to use the radiation as a source of energy, analogous to the way that plants use the energy in sunlight. And they've been around on Earth for maybe more than a billion years. When in our evolution did we start forming relationships, deliberate relationships with fungi? Um, we've been forming unintentional relationships with fungi for um, longer than we can know. We have yeasts which line our orifices and live inside us and on us and play important parts in our, our very basic physiology. And those relationships would have been going on for an unknowably long time. We've been forming intentional relationships with yeast for thousands of years as a brewing and baking uh, partner. And again, we don't know quite how long that's been going on for, but it's likely it's been going on for longer than we've been humans because other primates eat and enjoy over-fermented fruit. And so our relationship with alcohol and the yeast that produce it is definitely old. In all the preserved foods, I mean, miso, for example, uh, soy sauce, then there's the alcohols and all these various ferments that we would have depended on for preservation of foods. That's been going on for a very, very long time as well. So our relationships with fungi as food and as medicines. Yeah, what about as medicine? When, when does that start in the human story? Well, the earliest evidence that we have is actually with a Neanderthal human uh, found with a evidence of a tooth abscess, an infected tooth. And this individual had been eating uh, a penicillium mold. So a penicillin-producing mold and appeared to have 
uh, knowledge of its medicinal properties, uh, which is fascinating because this is really very, very long time ago. And it's only in the 1920s that Alexander Fleming discovered that penicillium or produced penicillin, which revolutionized modern medicine. So this Neanderthal find is some of the earliest evidence we have for the self-medication using fungi. And do we use uh, medicines, other medicines in modern medicine that, that come originally from fungi? Absolutely, many of them. There's cyclosporin, which makes immunosuppressant, that makes organ transplants possible. There's uh, penicillin, of course. There's other antibiotics. There's statins, the cholesterol-lowering drugs. There's Taxol. Um, the blockbuster anti-cancer drug, which is produced by fungi that live in the needles of yew trees. Psilocybin, the psychedelic, which has been found to have an amazing ability to help relieve symptoms of depression and addiction and um, existential anxiety following terminal diagnoses. There's a long list. This is, this is an amazing sketch that you're drawing, Merlin. When did you first become fascinated with fungi? Well, it sort of happened bit by bit. When I was small, I was very interested in the way things change. I always was puzzled by when I looked at a log, and then over time, a log would become soil, you know, this rotting, this decomposition, and piles of leaves in the garden would become soil. And I always wondered how this happened. How did this change take place? And, and then I became interested in these invisible organisms that I was told about that oversee these transformations. And I always tried to Try to imagine them because how could they be so powerful and yet so small that I couldn't see them? And that was always something that puzzled me and led me into fungi through this decomposition route. Uh, but then I've also long been interested in symbiosis and that's what really took my interest to this next level because I started studying these relationships that form between fungi and trees, uh, these symbiotic relationships that, uh, that make much of life on land possible. What did you get up with with fungi as a teenager? As a teenager, I grew mushrooms. I, um, I looked for mushrooms. Where did you grow your mushrooms? I grew mushrooms in my bedroom. <laughs> Does that say something about the kind of climate in your bedroom or, or a bedroom's a good spot to grow mushrooms? It's a very good spot. I mean, as good a spot as anywhere else. <laughs> you can get mushroom kits, and, um, which are very easy to grow. And you just spray them with water, and um, and they can grow, you know, wherever there's a bit of light and where it's not too hot, not too cold. Um, but it's amazing to grow these grow mushrooms from kits because you can see them sprouting and growing uh, incredibly fast. And you can see these amazing forms unfolding almost. Almost, you can see them in real time. Was it as a teenager that you started brewing as well? Absolutely, yes. So then I started brewing, which was, which was really this yeast exploration. And it was part of this decomposition story, you know, because the nice thing about brewing and, and fermenting in general is that you, you have domesticated a decomposition process. You've, you've housed this sort of rotting process, but in a jar or in a bottle or in a carboy in your house. And so not only can you see this transformation taking place as it bubbles and froths, but you can taste it. And so I always found this as a way to um, these little microcosms of these big biogeochemical cycles taking place on the planet that were over too big an area and too long a time to really, uh, really notice intimately. But when you house them in a jar, you can get a sense of this kind of process that really um, these great chemical tides and weather systems that play themselves across the earth and which govern so much of the, um, the ecosystems that sustain us. Where did you source your ingredients from back then, Merlin? Well, it depends. I was, you know, I'd make wines and I'd make beers, but what was really exciting was when I got into brewing from historical recipes. I like these recipes because, you know, you find them in these old books, two, three hundred years old. And Yeast were only discovered to be a, a microscopic organism in the 19th century. So in many of these old recipes, yeast are a silent companion, um, this invisible part of human culture. And it became a really exciting process to brew these old texts uh, into being and to have this, um, this access to these old recipes and old ways of working with um, microbes before we knew um, that they were even there, yeah. So, so what sort of flavors? What sort of what sort of things did you brew up in your bedroom? 
Oh, there are so many things. Well, there the Gruet ales was one, these medieval ales that were made before hops became a standard ingredient of beer. Um, and people made beer from, from grains, but then from all sorts of um, plants that happened to be around. And if you were somewhere that hops didn't grow, you wouldn't use hops. And also hops have a, a soporific effect. You know, they, they're good for helping you to sleep. And so some people wouldn't want to have beer that helped them sleep. You'd rather want to have a beer that made you awake or lively or whatever. So grew ales were a great one with yarrow and bog myrtle. Those produced these, those are really quite euphoric beers. Um, but also meads, um, meads are always fun. Would you get your bog myrtle and whatever goes into a mead just from, you know, the countryside around you? I can't imagine you turning up at the local supermarket and finding all of the ingredients ready on the shelf there. No, no, I'd have to go and forage them from uh, local marshes in the case of the bog myrtle. And what kind of flavours were were you able to come up with? Were they were they drinks that you enjoyed drinking and, and sharing? Absolutely, they were delicious. Um, well, some of them were delicious. Some of them were. <laughs> <laughs> What's the worst one you ever made? Well, some of them were they just, you know, there's, there's a world in which I can imagine it being good, but it just, something was wrong. Something didn't quite work. I'd always be fascinated to drink them myself because, um, because I'd, learn, I'd learn something. Um, but some of them I wouldn't, wouldn't give to my friends because they were more... I could drink them out of some kind of academic interest, but <laughs> <laughs> not everyone wanted to do that with me. <laughs> and what did your family think about you on your home brewing journey when you were at high school and you were doing some of this stuff in your bedroom? What did your parents make of it? I think a sort of quiet amusement. <laughs> My brother also got into brewing and then they were encouraging, really. They thought, well, you know, it's a way of learning about the natural world. And if they are going to drink beer, then may as well make it themselves. <laughs> may as well be medieval ale from bog myrtle. Fair enough. You um you went on to study ecology at Cambridge University. Whereabouts did you do your field research for your PhD? I was working in Panama at a research institute called the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute. And they have a field station on an island in the middle of a large lake which is in fact the Panama Canal and it's an amazing place to be because they have there's amazing facilities so you can go you can be in the jungle and then come back that day and you can have liquid nitrogen if you need it minus 80 freezers centrifuges all this kind of kit that um, that allows you to do certain studies in which you wouldn't necessarily find uh, in all field stations so it was very well resourced and that made a lot of things possible that wouldn't otherwise be possible. And what kind of life was there on that island in that, that tropical part of Panama? It was amazing. It was full of ecologists uh, and, well, um, biologists and many ecologists uh, doing all sorts of strange research. And the, you know, these tropical forests are incredibly diverse. There are so many ways to be a living organism in the tropics. And so the diversity of the flora and fauna um, and microflora and microfauna was matched by the diversity of the biologists who came there to study it. So <laughs> there were people who would be studying the way that the, what happens if lightning strikes trees and, you know, and some people were studying the way that ants travel between trees on lianas and some people were studying the way that bumblebees travel through the forest pollinating flowers and some people would be studying the way that monkeys eat overripe fruits and some people would be studying the way that um, different types of birds, uh, you know, how they lay their eggs and, and how they manage their sexual lives. And I mean, there's just a hugely long list of um, different things. So it was a very exciting place to be because all these, when you're a field biologist, you're, you're inside your, the flask, you're inside the test tube because you are walking around within the ecosystem that you're studying. When you're a lab biologist, you're the, the life, the fragments of life you study are in tubes, in flasks, and you're, uh, you're in total control over them. And so there's this different power relation. If you're in the field, if you're in the jungle, in the forest you're studying, um, then you're somehow part of that um, situation a bit more. You've got to be more humble because you know, storms come along and 
wash away the markers that you've used to lay out your experiment and trees come crashing down on your apparatus and humility sets in. What you got particularly interested in while you were there was a small blue flower that grows in that part of Panama. What made those flowers so interesting to you? So these flowers were very striking because they are, they're small, they're about the size of a coffee cup, the height of a coffee cup, but with this very striking blue flower, they're a type of gentian, um, but they didn't have any green and nor leaves, so it was just a, a thin white stalk. If I go back to my high school biology, Merlin, no, no green, no leaves says to me that's not possible because how can it photosynthesize? Well, it doesn't photosynthesize. So it's an unusual type of plant uh, because it's lost the ability to photosynthesize and it's lost its green color, the chlorophyll that makes photosynthesis possible. And its leaves have shrunk to these tiny little scales on its stalk. And instead of photosynthesizing it, it um, gets its energy from its fungal partners, the fungi that uh, lace into the soil and it plugs into these fungal networks and actually obtains its sugars uh, from other green plants but via the fungal networks. Wait a minute, so it, it grows and attaches physically into fungi underneath the soil? Yes, yeah, so almost all plants do this. Almost all plants have fungi that live in their roots and extend outwards into the soil and which help them to find nutrients in the soil and find water in the soil. And so this is a very normal part of planthood. But what these white flowers do, these, these voiria, they were called these particular type of, these blue flowers, they would have fungi that would lace out through the soil and around the roots of another plant. And then that plant would be photosynthesizing and those sugars would go down into the fungal network and then into the voiria. So voiria were able to, to get their nutrition from other plants via a fungal network. <laughs> and was it a trade-off? I mean, did that, did that blue flower have to give anything back into the system in return? The basic deal with these fungi is that the green plant would supply the fungus with sugars and lipids that it makes in photosynthesis, energy, basically, energy compounds. And the fungus would supply the plant with uh, mineral nutrients it's found in the soil. And they have a kind of trade going on. And that's how this relationship would work when the plant is, is green and photosynthesizing. But in the case of Voria, there couldn't be that trade because Voria doesn't photosynthesize. And so it didn't seem to have anything to offer back to the fungus. And that's partly why I was interested in it, because uh, this plant was receiving from the fungus, but didn't seem to be giving back to the fungus. The science writer Michael Pollan has been on conversations describing his experience with psychedelic drugs. How did your study of the blue voria lead to you taking LSD? Well, I was, I was doing some work in the plant sciences department at Cambridge, and uh, I saw a poster on a wall that said, do you have a meaningful problem that needs solving? Uh, and I thought, well, yes, I sure, sure I do, several. And um, so I called the number, and um, I was wasn't sure if I was behaving irresponsibly or responsibly, but I, I called the number, and it turned out that these people were recruiting scientists to take part in a study into the effects of LSD on the problem-solving ability of scientists. And it was you know, an official study, governed, approved in a uh, clinical studies wing of a hospital and so I signed up and, and went for my went for my study and they gave us a dose of LSD and then we would had our own you know, a room with an assistant and, and we'd been asked to uh, beforehand to define our, our work related problem some kind of problem in our inquiry that we were fumbling with that we were struggling to unpick to untie these knots in our inquiry that we weren't able to loosen. And the idea was that maybe LSD could help us approach old problems from new angles and to find our way into these difficult parts of our studies and to change our perspective. And so I was lying there in this room um, and, and had this psychedelic experience. And some point in my trip, then my assistant said, uh, maybe it's time to think about your 
work-related problem. And so I thought, oh, my God, for my work-related problem. <laughs> work? What is work? <laughs> <laughs> problem? <laughs> yeah. So then I, um, so I started thinking about these flowers, and I wanted to think about how, how it was that these flowers might be giving something back to the fungus in a way that we hadn't seen, we hadn't noticed. And I, I just, yeah, I had this very vivid experience of being underground in the soil and imagining this kind of wild west of the soil, you know, these bustling with life, so many different types of organism um, working in these astonishing ways with these chemical weather systems passing across these different parts of the soil and very vivid experience, which, you know, I didn't think these were um, any kind of um, biological fact that I was experiencing. It was just this vivid vision. But what it left me with was a sense that I had too often thought of these fungi as mechanical schematic entities. These, um, these kind of, the, the organisms that look like school teachers' diagrams on the classroom board. Um, and it made me remember that these were uh, astonishing living organisms engaged in lives that we still struggle to understand. And it helped me to uh, re-engage my imagination uh, with the study of these organisms and re-engage my fascination. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. When you watch how fungi make their way around a, a labyrinth in a lab setting, tell me what you see. Yeah, these studies are great. Where so researchers have made these microscopic labyrinths. So a fungal network is called mycelium, but a single fungal cell is called a hypha, a plural hyphae. And they're these elongating cells that branch and fuse. And if you put one hypha into a labyrinth, and you can watch this through a microscope, and when it gets to a forked path, it branches, takes both roots usually. Um, and so you have these... This one cell becomes two, becomes four, becomes eight as it explores this labyrinth, and yet all remain connected in one network. Um, so I always get very confused about singular and plural here when I watch this happening. It's like, is this one organism? Is this several? Um, and so it does funny things to our minds, you know, how these, the way these networks behave. What's directing them as they do that, Merlin? Well... This is, an, this is one of the puzzles of these fungal networks. They're decentralized organisms. We're so used to having a head. You know, <laughs> we have a head and we, and we have capital cities and we have heads of state. Um, we have heads and centralized bodies and we live in centralized social systems that mirror our centralized bodies. And so it's very hard for us to imagine how one could live in a different kind of way. Their control and coordination is somehow everywhere at once and nowhere in particular. And so you can cut off a little fragment of a network, it can turn into a whole new network. So fungi don't have a distinct brain the way that, as you say, we and, and other animals have, but is the whole network acting like a brain? Well, uh, yes. If we think of a brain as a place where, where we integrate information and where we, uh, when we connect perception with action, where we make that link between the way we perceive the world and the way that we then act in the world. Um, and so in that sense, fungal networks are a brain-like phenomenon because in these flexible networks, they're able to integrate information and they're able to link perception with action. And um, so we wouldn't necessarily say that they are brains, but we would say that they um, play the role that brains do in our bodies, but a very different kind of role, right? Because these are very different kinds of organisms doing very different kinds of things um, and adapting to very different kinds of challenges. And everything, every part of that organism 
is the brain or or is is not the brain but it's 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 all of it at once is is having that ability i mean you, scientists can tell that it's all part of one organism by sampling dna and checking is there any way of understanding or imagining whether the organism itself has a sense of it being part of the one thing, like the bit that's spreading over a one tree branch at one part of the forest and the bit that's spreading up through a rotten log on the other part? Does it know that it's one thing? Yeah, so this is one of the things that, you know, as a fungal network, if you're one part of a fungal network and you bump into another uh, fungal cell, um, a fun exploring fungal growing tip, you have to be able to tell whether that's part of you or a different network entirely. And if it's a different network entirely, is it a potentially hostile network or is it one that you can mate with? Um, and so these are questions that, these are problems that um, mycelium and uh, microbes in general, they have to deal with this all the time. Plant roots do too. And so there is some, there's, there's self-recognition um, and there are uh, behaviors that allow these fungi to uh, ascertain whether or not this is a, you know, a compatible network to fuse with or not. And so we can think of that as being, um, the, yeah, it's a, the self, non-self recognition. Can you describe some of the experiments that, that scientists have done to study this ability or this behaviour that, that seems so fundamental to fungi? Like I think it's Professor Body at, at Cardiff. What has she done? She's done these great experiments you know, to test the for you know, to examine the foraging behavior of these networks. So she would get a, a block of wood which is filled with a, a, a wood rotting fungus. And so this is a fungus embedded in its food, and she puts this block of wood onto a, a dish and then places another block of wood you know, a few inches away from that block of wood. And then monitors the behavior. And what you see is that the the, the fungal network explores outwards from this rotting lump of wood in a, in a kind of um it explores all the directions at once it forms this fuzzy white circle if we were if we were dropped in a desert and had to set out and search for water uh, we'd have to pick one direction to travel in but these fungal networks can explore in all directions at once um so that outwards they go in this big fuzzy circle and when one part of the network discovers the other piece of wood then the behavior of the entire network changes and the fungus withdraws the parts of it which are exploring that have not found the block of wood and it thickens the parts of it that are connecting with this um, new block of wood. And so over a few days, the network completely remodels itself. And it's a good example of the way that these networks are both uh, sprawling and rambling, but also uh, coordinated holes that can um, and that constantly remodel themselves in response to differences and changes in their environment. I want to ask you about a, a particular kind of fungi, truffles, which, like mushrooms, are edible. But how do they differ from mushrooms? What's the, what's the truffle solution to being a fungi? So truffles are a fruiting body like a mushroom. Um, so they've, got, they've evolved to be the way that the fungus disperses its spores. But truffles, are, they grow below the ground. And so they have these spores, they're below the ground, um, but below the ground, they're unavailable to air currents and wind, uh, and they're uh, out of sight, and so animals can't readily see them. So their solution is to produce a, a loud and fascinating smell. And this smell allows them to attract animals, and the animals then eat the truffles and carry them away and deposit them in their feces. And so a truffle's ability to spread its spores depends entirely on its ability to attract an animal. But the you know, forests are busy places in olfactory terms and animals are distractible. And imagine a dog you know, walking around in a forest full of smells to catch the attention of the dog and um, to send that smell through several layers, several centimeters of damp soil um, to such a strong smell that it you know, ribbons out into the forest and uh, such a fascinating smell that the dog would drop everything it was doing and uh, run after the smell and dig up the truffle and then eat it. Um, so this is why truffles have these astonishing, uh, astonishing smells and flavors. And it's no surprise, perhaps, that humans have um, fallen for them too. <laughs> Whereabouts did you go truffle hunting, Merlin? I went truffle hunting in... 
in America, in Oregon, but also went truffle hunting in Italy. And I, in Italy, I wanted to join some truffle hunters who are hunting for the elusive white truffle, Tuba magnatum, which has never been domesticated and has to be found in the wild. And what were they like, the, the men you were hunting with and, and their dogs? What kind of people are professional truffle hunters? Serious characters. So they're, it's all about turf, right? So it's like if you, you want to know where to look and you've got to be able to um, find these incredibly valuable fungi in certain areas. So there's people, people who hunt in the same area and you might be allies with them or rivals with them. And so it's, it's a very messy and um, there's a lot of skullduggery. There's one of the big, um, really ugly sides of the truffle hunting is people poison, leave poisoned meatballs and um, put strychnine in puddles in forest to poison the dogs of their competitors. And so their competitors comes out and their dog takes years to train and a lot of, a lot of time and, and, and attention to train a dog. Um, and then you go out and it drinks um, strychnine water from, the, from this puddle and then it dies. And so that's one of the really ugly sides. And there are these accounts of vets in truffle hunting areas. And the, the, the vets have all these poisoned dogs that they're treating. And, the, and I read this account from one vet and, and he said that the worst thing is that you know that people bringing in their poisoned dogs are themselves likely to be the poisoners of the <laughs> other dogs that you're treating. Um, so there's a lot of you know, there's a, there's, a, there's an ugly side, but um, but that happens whenever humans are trading in a very valuable resource, and truffles are indeed a valuable resource. What happened on the day that that you went? Is it is it exhausting, or or did you have to you know forage far before you could find any of these truffles? You know what's really amazing is the way that the truffle hunters and the dogs have learned to communicate with each other, and it was it was. It was fun to be part of that because you realize that the truffle itself is engaged in a kind of communication with animals that, you know, that may or may not be fascinated in it. So the truffle has evolved to communicate its readiness to be eaten. And here are these humans and dogs which have evolved to communicate with each other about the truffle's communication to them. Um, so there's this whole nested ecology of interspecies communication. And so the, the dog runs around, zigzags around and has a you know, when it goes after a truffle, there's a certain way that it can you know, that you can tell if it one poor dig or a two poor dig is it wagging its tail? Is it not wagging its tail? Wow! And what all that's been trained to communicate between the dog and the owner? Yes, absolutely. And so then the owner might we had two different there were two different um, truffle hunters and, and each of them had different methods. One was the old school method for training truffle dogs, which is by hunger, and so had this very unkempt hungry dog um, and the other one had this very well-loved dog that it trained by um, as if it was a game so for, for one of the dogs truffle hunting was a game and for one of the dogs truffle hunting meant food um, and so there were these two and different which was approaches better? and it was interesting well the hungry dog was a bit sharper um, and quicker off the mark but the danger of the hungry dog was that the hunter had to be very careful that it wouldn't eat the truffle because a hungry dog eats the truffle. Um, so there's there's risks that come with training your dog through hunger. And did you manage to find any of these these white uh, Piedmont white truffles on that day? Yes, we did. It was thrilling. So the dog darted off, and then the truffle hunter followed the dog, and the other truffle hunter followed that truffle hunter. Then I followed that truffle hunter. We had this <laughs> this cascade <laughs> of excitement. And um, and then and then you know, the, the dog was digging, the, the the truffle hunter was digging with it to make sure it didn't eat the truffle. And at a certain point, when the truffle is is revealed, you, this smell comes up, and it's, it smells so much more vivid than it does in the weighing room because the smell is an active process. It's produced by living metabolizing cells. You can't dry a truffle and expect to taste it later, like you can do with some types of mushroom. Um, it's a it's a living summons. And so you smell this smell and, and in harmony with the, you know, the, the fraying smell of the leaf mold, um, the, the damp breeze, the rotting wood and, and, and this, this astonishing odour just um, ribbons up. And um, so it was a very, it was a very vivid and, and powerful experience. I mean, I know it's so hard to describe smells, but was it a pleasant smell or was it just a strong smell? What 
kind of adjectives come to your mind? I, I thought it was very pleasant, very fascinating smell. <laughs> you know, just a, just a, a, a <laughs> quite unlike anything else, and one that really worked um, in this forest context. You, know, you could smell how it it was it made a perfect chord with the other smells that were there. If I'd smelt the truffle smell on its own, as I later did um, in the weighing room or in a, in, in a restaurant, then it it stands out as this unusual smell, but it really made sense in the forest. It, it You could tell that that smell had evolved there. The relationship that fungi have to animals and insects is, is a fascinating one. What are zombie fungi, Merlin, and how do they operate? So, yeah, this is a very fascinating part of the of fungal life. Um, and there are these fungi... Uh, Quite a large number of them, in fact, and this ability has evolved uh, multiple times, that these fungi can grow inside insects and to puppet their behavior to serve the fungus's purpose. So one example is a fungus called Ophiocordyceps, and the Ophiocordyceps infects carpenter ants. And normally these ants live in the damp um, shadows, the damp ground um, of forest, but... And, and height and light are, are instinctively avoided because these things, you know, climbing up high, uh, climbing into the light, these things make the ants vulnerable to predation. So ants avoid those, um, avoid those cues. And so when they get infected by Ophiocordyceps, they, uh, they become fascinated by height and by light, by these things which, is not, which are normally... Um, which normally do the opposite. And so the fungus can somehow override their instincts um, and then cause them to climb up high um, on, on these plant stems, uh, a syndrome called summit disease. Um, and then an ant climbs up high and then at just the right height for the fungus to fruit, about, in the case of Ophicordyceps, about 15 centimeters above the forest floor, the ant uh, bites on to a vein on the underside of a leaf in what's called a death grip. Um, and at that point, the fungus kills the ant and sprouts a stalk from its head and showers down spores on the ants passing below where it can reinfect them and continue its life cycle. So really what's happening is that this is a fungus in ants' clothing. This is not ant behavior. This is fungus behavior. And the fungus has evolved to, to commandeer, to hijack the body of an animal um, and, to, and to get behind the steering wheel. And that's, so that's for Ophiocordyceps and, and carpenter ants, but there's many different sorts. There's different fungi that infect cicadas, for example. And the ones that affect cicadas, they, they, they're the back um, third of the cicada falls off, but the fungus is so expertly able to arrange for its deterioration that it keeps its central nervous system and, and motor coordination intact. So it, it makes the cicada still fly around even though the back half of it has disintegrated through... The fungus and and what that helps spread the spores of the fungus, I guess. Yeah, and so then the fungus produces this. Um, it's just spouting spores out of the cicada's broken back end. It's just unbelievable. Is it known how funguses, fungi, are able to do that? How do they control the the behaviours of a of an insect? They grow through the body of an insect, and they uh, they seem to do it by producing. Are cocktails of chemicals which act on the insect's central nervous system, so i.e. pharmacologically. Um, and it's not known whether the fungus interposes itself between the brain of the insect and its body and controls its muscles directly, or whether it controls the insect's brain and thus controls its muscles. So um, mysteries remain, but the chemicals that it uses to do so are very interesting because they relate to chemicals that we're familiar with and, and take as humans. So in the case of uh, cicadas, for example, um, has recently found that these fungi mathospora that infect cicadas produce um, catenone, which is a, an amphetamine, and psilocybin, which, as we know, is a psychedelic. So what exactly this amphetamine and psychedelic are doing in the a cicada's you know, death flight. Uh, we're not sure. Incredible. And, and maybe it accounts for some of the um, distinctive nature of that death flight. If it's on meth and hallucinogens at the same time, This is a, that's a big end for the cicada. Merlin, as you're describing fungi, I mean, they just sound like the most uh, amazing part of, of world, the world. If they haven't been the focus of study in academia, who is it? 
what kind of people or where have they been being studied over the last century or so? Who's really taken the lead in, in exploring the world of fungi? There have been a lot of fungal research which has taken place by passionate amateurs. Uh, and you know, all realms of the life sciences have been driven by amateur enthusiasm um, for much of their history because it's only quite recently that we've had universities and university departments um, that make this formal study of the living world possible. But so amateurs are a big part of science in general and the history of science, but um, particularly in mycology. And so you have, I mean, and Funky have the power to inspire a kind of uh, a passionate curiosity in those who are interested in them. And so we really see that in, in, in the mycological world. Uh, and today we see that with these DIY mycologists who are, um, you know, doing all sorts of fungal inquiry um, and working out new ways to live and work with these organisms. Can good science still come out of that DIY world, in your view? Absolutely, yeah. Um, certain types of science you need to um, have usually quite expensive kit um, and access to specialised laboratories. And so that's naturally harder to do if you don't have that kit and that access, but there's a lot of science that you can do without it. And, um, and in the fungal world, what the people are devising new ways to cultivate mushrooms and, and to get around the need for this kit. And, and, and so there are these ingenious techniques being developed by a DIY mycologists to cultivate fungi uh, in your kitchen and, um, without the need for fancy equipment. And so you can see in this situation that the limitation, the, the lack of this equipment actually drives innovation and drives uh, these ingenious solutions. What about mycofabrication? What, what's that? Mycofabrication is using mycelium to build materials. So uh, this is one of the really exciting applications of fungi. And it's, you can grow mycelium in molds um, to produce blocks of um, blocks of material that can be used as packaging. And so Dell, for example, ship their servers in mycelial packaging. IKEA are working out how to use mycelial packaging. Um, but you can also grow you know, blocks to build um, structures from. So what, structures that you could live in, like building yeah, yeah. structures out of fungi. Exactly, building structures um, or, or you know, tiles, which you can use to uh, acoustically... Uh, acoustic tiles for you no know, sound baffling um, and leather a leather like material which is which may really transform the fashion industry I and mean, you imagine how much you know, to make some leather with a cow you have to uh, find a field so usually cut down a forest make a field have a cow cut down more forest grow soybeans you know or, you know, if you're talking about pig leather but um, but it's just this cutting down um in use of resources to cultivate these animals, which you then need to kill, um, and then you need to you know, get their leather. And so this is a, a resource-intensive process. And imagine if you could just make leather uh, growing it inside um, on waste material in a week. Given their extraordinary voracious appetites, can fungi be trained to digest particular kinds of, of waste? Yeah, so this is a really exciting part of the um, fungal world and fungal applications, and we call it mycoremediation. Um, so harnessing fungal appetites to break down um, toxic or recalcitrant uh, pollutants that we have released into the environment. And so, yeah, so you can train fungi to, um, to break down all sorts of poisons. Uh, the mycologist Paul Stamets in America, he has a story about training some fungal strains to digest DMMP, which is this toxic, it's a precursor to a toxic uh, nerve gas. And when you expose fungi to this, this substance, they you, you gradually increase the concentration of this substance and the fungi get used to it and work out how to metabolize it. And in the end, you can cultivate the fungi on this substance um, as their sole food source. Um, and they can disassemble it into its harmless constituents. And other examples, I think you give like cigarette butts and, and dirty nappies that 
that things that seem, you know, to the unfungli, fungally educated among us to be impossible, fungi can break those sorts of things down too. Absolutely, yeah. Um, a radical mycologist in the States called Peter McCoy did this experiment with cigarette butts, uh, used cigarette butts, uh, which are contaminated with all sorts of things like polyaromatic hydrocarbons, these nasty chemicals which are, um, are toxic to many decomposers. But when you expose these fungi to these cigarette butts in you know, gradually increasing concentrations, in the end you can grow the fungus on the toxic used cigarette butts um, as their sole food source. Um, so this is really an exciting, exciting avenue for research. As someone who studies fungi, Merlin, what are you most curious about that might become clearer, you know, in 20 or, or 50 years' time as people like you and, and other scientists and DIY enthusiasts work on the field? What, is, what thing about fungi are you keenest to, to get clearer on? One thing that I'm particularly excited about is to learn more about how these fungal networks communicate with themselves. So um, we're finding out that um, that in some in some types of fungus they use they conduct electrical impulses along their cells, analogous to the action potentials that travel along human nerve cells. And if we can um, study this more and work out how one part of a fungal network is able to stay in touch with another part of a fungal network and, and possibly even learn to interpret these signals that it uses to communicate with itself, uh, then we might be able to plug into fungal networks growing in an environment, say through the soil and around tree roots and you know, ranging through an ecosystem, and to, um, and to eavesdrop, to listen to the way it's communicating with itself and to use it as a kind of environmental sensor um, to learn about what's taking place in that ecosystem. Um, so that's just one small example, but there are so many ways that um, these organisms change our understanding. Merlin, I've just loved being taken into the kingdom of fungi. It's an extraordinary place. Thank you so much for, for speaking to me on Conversations. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode from our summer podcast series. You can find the rest of the series and thousands more conversations on the ABC Listen app.